Welcome, welcome. Um, if you couldn't tell uh, by now, this is not the voice of Grant Luton. <laughs> I am not Grant Luton. I am Tim Pell. I'm filling in for Grant this week as we dive into Torah portion Matot Masay. Um, Grant is, is not here, but he uh, honored me by asking me to fill in, and I graciously accepted. And uh, uh, I think I've, I've got some interesting things I want to share with you. Um, so we'll get started here in just a second. Um, Matot Masay uh, is a double portion. It um, is Numbers uh, chapter 30, verse 2 to 36, verse 13, and it includes a lot of stuff, as you can imagine, a double portion. Uh, the Midianites' comeuppance, um, Reuben and Gad's weak faith in the damage it caused, Israel's boundaries in the land are determined, uh, the appointment of the Levitical cities, and the 42 encampments. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, is the 42 encampments. Not all of them, some of them. Um, and the 42 encampments you'll find listed in uh, Numbers 33, verses 3 through 49, where they're all recounted. Now, these, these encampments were, they existed everywhere else in the Torah, so you, you can go back and, and, and read about uh, each of them. But the, the source material I'm using for uh, this lesson is actually something that Grant has just finished. Now, if you're watching this video sometime in the future, it will have been done for a while. But last week, he just finished a devotional series called 40 Years at 42 Camps. 42 individual devotionals for each of the encampments of Israel. It's a really great read. Um, I really enjoyed it. So he provided me an advanced copy because I'm special. Um, but so are you, because you're going to get to benefit from this a little bit tonight, um, or today, or whenever it is you watch it. So, 40 years at 42 camps. Um, I may be skipping around a little bit. I've got some notes and, and my computer and a Bible, uh, but I have two children, and I work full-time, and, and though I would love to have something as wonderfully succinct and not, uh, uh, you know, ADD, uh, as I am, it would be great. But this, this is this is me. You're, you're gonna get you're gonna get Tim Pal uh, in my in my fullest sense. So I hope I hope that's okay with you because it's okay with me. I've been living this way for a long time. All right. So so a few things um, in in thirty in verse two of chapter thirty three. Let's just go there real quick. <clears throat> It says, Moses recorded their, their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. Now, this is the NASB that I'm reading from, uh, and it says starting places. But the actual Hebrew word there means going forth, the go, goings forth. And, and that, I think, is, is, is an important point uh, because any journey has a starting point, and that is where you're coming from. The, the Israelites are, are coming out of slavery. So that's part of the journey. It isn't just while they're in the wilderness or while they're traveling. The starting point is important, too. So keep that in mind as we, as we go forward from here. Um, and speaking of starting points and journeys, I love backpacking. I love camping. And I love it because is a way in which I can detach from the world. I can refresh. I can uh, 
recharge, I can, uh, I can get some space between me and all the things that have to be done that I just can't finish. There's always things that need to be done, right? So I like to go backpacking. I like the forest. I go with friends, mostly. Um, I, I like the campfire. I like to read. I like to just chill at the campsite. And I like to stay in one campsite for many, many days. What I don't love is the hiking. And I never remember that until I'm actually hiking. I, I love backpacking, right? So I love the destination. I love the place where I'm going to go, the beautiful scenery, the, 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 the sound of the trees, the, the wind and the leaves, uh, the birds, the wildlife, all that kind of stuff. I, I love all of that. And when I'm planning for my trip, I'm just excited. I'm super excited. I, I spend days planning out my gear, lining it all up. I weigh everything. I like everything to be under 30 pounds. I'm real, I real geek out on this stuff. Um, and then I, you know, I get my guys together. We get in the car. We load up, and, and we're on the drive. We're getting there, and, and we park the car at the trailhead. And, and then when I'm putting the backpack on, that's when it like starts to sink in what's about to transpire over the next couple hours or so. And I, and I start to remember, like, oh, wait, this is not the part that I love. But it's about to happen, and I've got to do it for me to get to this place that I want to be. The point is that the, the destination that I, that I love so much is so special because of the journey I have to take. Right? A lot of people like to car camp. I, I've done it a little bit, and it, it is, it's good. It has its uses, its purposes. I, I don't feel like I can get away as much when I car camp as when I, can, as when I have to actually go a distance, struggle up a hill, go where there are no people, uh, you know, orienteering, navigating, all that kind of stuff. There has to be some effort there, and I don't love the effort. I, I don't know that anyone really loves the effort. But that's what makes the destination so special. It makes that, that land so sweet. So that's... Just a practical example of, of what it is we're going to be talking about here with the wilderness and all these encampments and these goings forth. And of course, the goings forth for me in a, in a backpacking trip is my home. That's where I've come from. I came from there, the home, which, is, it, which in this scenario may represent um, you know, all the things that I have to do that I just can't get to quite yet. I'm, I'm burdened with, with tasks and responsibilities. I'm, in a sense, a slave to... To my, to my role as a husband and father and co-worker and, and all these things, which you know, is, not, is not bad in and of itself, but that, in that context, in that kind of story, that's how that's playing out. So, the wilderness, as we know it, is transformative. That's the point of the wilderness. The point of the journey is to change us. Uh, there, there are lots of... of symbols and things in scripture that we can look to to inform our understanding of the transformative nature of the wilderness. The word midbar starts with the letter mem, and as we know, mem is, uh, is the water, is, is the, the letter of uh, water, so it represents water. And in water is where a lot of the, the, the big transformations in our lives can take place. Think of birth. Birth is entirely in water. Um, uh, spiritual uh, transformation, baptism, in the waters of baptism, you know, or any other kind of cleansing, that's a transformation where you're in water and you come back out. 
The fact that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 is the number of transformation. Anytime you see the number 40 in Scripture, there is transformation that is, is being communicated or, or shown in these stories or these, these people. Um, so there's transformation happening here. But why is transformation so important? Right? So Israel has, has been recently freed. Isn't that an instant transformation? I mean, it's a big change, right? Slaves, free, boom, done, right? Well, not so much. Think of how a newly freed person, let's, th- let's say this is someone who has been in prison, uh, who was uh, convicted of a crime, and they were in prison for a long time. And they've been newly freed. They've, they've served their time, and they've come out back into the world. Um, there's something called recidivism that is studied a lot. And you, hear, you may hear a news story about a recidivism rates these days or something where the recidivism is, is, is the idea that um, after coming out into the, into the world, into the population, the, the percentage of people who re-offend or relapse, uh, who go back to their old ways, um, and they study that number to see if it's increasing or decreasing. That's an important concept. This freed people who weren't freed because of anything necessarily they did wrong as individuals. They are put into this slavery position, this constriction. And in this lack of freedom, they don't have any freedom. They don't have freedom to think for themselves, to to make any choices for themselves. And they're used to that. And these are people who've been there for generations. Generations of people who are used to this kind of, of slavery, this imprisonment. Now they're free. Being free means you're now free to choose. But people who have just recently been plucked out of a long imprisonment haven't exercised their decision-making muscle in a very long time. Um, and and let's, uh, let's think about when we're having weak moments, right? So we, we can say, I am free from the slavery of addiction. I'm free from the slavery of, of poor choices or a poor relationship, bad relationships. Maybe we have a habit of, of, of being around people and, and being in relationship with people that just aren't healthy for us. And now we're free from that. Is it simply over? Is it done? Are we done with it? Um, have we been changed? Or is our state changed? Probably just the latter. Our state's changed, but there's something still in us that needs to be changed. So that's why the transformation needs to take place. And that's why for this, uh, for this people who have been enslaved for generations, it's got to take 40 years. It's got to take a long time to get that out of them. So I, I would say that the wilderness is necessary because God keeps his promises. The wilderness is necessary. Transformation in you and me is necessary because God keeps his promises. And I'll, I'll elaborate that on that a little bit here at the end, too. And I'm just going to copy and paste my note here so that I remember to do that. <laughs> ADD, people. This is what it's like. All right. So let's go through some of uh, the first ten encampments, the goings forth um, in their journey. So we'll start off with Ramses. Now, obviously, that wasn't an encampment. They weren't camped there. Ramses, this is, this is Egypt, right? Um, Egypt isn't, isn't a place where they 
camped, it was the first goings forth. It was the first place they left from. It was their starting point. Remember that we talked about how the starting point is, a, is an important uh, aspect of any journey from point A to point B. Well, what's point A in this story? Egypt. Egypt. That's the first goings forth. And I've been thinking lately uh, about, about our home, about our house. Tara and I, my wife Tara and I, we're wanting to minimize. And because we want our home to be a place of peace. We want our home to be a place that we come to to be refreshed and revived and safe, among other things. But what's dawning on me and her is that as important as it is for it to be a place to where we can, we can retreat to, it's also important for our home to be a healthy place to go out into the world from. Does that make sense? Having, having a place of, of peace and of strength and security that we go out from will change the way in which you see the world and interact with others, I believe. Um, and so we are endeavoring in our, in our home and our family to make our home a, a, a holy place to go out into the world from. Our home is our primary encampment, our primary goings forth. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's, that's, that's what I want to share with you about Ramses, about the first encampment, and, the, and why it was the first, and why that matters. Uh, the second one, we'll go to the second encampment. This is Sukkot. Sukkot means hut or shed. Um, this encampment, this going forth, is, I think, to teach us a little bit about the temporary nature of this journey. Uh, I mentioned uh, baptism and birth and, and other kinds of transformations that, we, that you could probably think of that take place in our lives. The nature of these transformations um, are such that they aren't meant to be permanent. A baby in the womb forever will die. It's not safe there. It's a dangerous place. Uh, if you're baptized in water, you've got to come back up or you'll drown. You'll die. The transformation takes place in this, in, in this environment of change, but too long in it will kill you. This is an important concept. So Sukkot reminds us of the temporary nature of this, that this wilderness, this, this experience of transformation is not forever. It's not meant to be forever. It's to get you from point A to point B. It's the connective tissue between the two places. All right, moving on. We'll go to the third encampment, third goings forth, Etam, which means sign. When I think of this uh, and that, and that it is a sign, I think, of uh, our previous portion, uh, Balak, and how this, this Balak was, that was a, a story that was kind of happening outside of Israel, right? It was, we, we're, we're following Israel through, uh, through their um, journey, 
And then we go to the side story of these two characters who are not Israel, Israelites, who don't know who the Israelites are. They, they know that there are people coming over the, over the mountain. And um, so we, we hear about this. And, you know, Balaam, of course, is asked to curse them. And he doesn't. He comes and he sees their encampment and he blesses them. He only, he only sings praise for, for Israelites and their God. Etam, the third encampment, is not where this takes place. Balak takes place at, uh, at the 42nd, the last encampment of Arvot Moab, the plains of Moab. That's where that one takes place. But their encampment, their, their journey was a sign. They didn't know they were being watched. When we're going through our wilderness, we don't know necessarily that we're being watched and observed by others. But they were, and they were blessed. Um, and the people who were observing them were basically given a sign. Uh, they, they saw the encampments, you know. Matovu um, Yisrael. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Think about that the next time you're going through your wilderness. You think you're alone. Uh, you think that there's not much good going to come out of it. But people are watching. People are watching. God is watching. He's going to fulfill his promise. And people are watching. And, they, and what they're going to see in your life and in, our, in my life is a sign of God's provision, of his steadfastness, his loving kindness, and, and, and seeing you through uh, to the promised land. So that's what I want to share from that one. We're going to skip the number four. Uh, and we'll go to the fifth encampment, uh, Mara. Mara means bitter. And I'd just like to read a couple verses from this portion. This I'm going to read um, Exodus. Oh, no, this, I'm going to read from the, the passage in Exodus where, they're, where they're in, uh, the actual experience is recorded. So Exodus 15, Exodus 15, verses 23 to 26. And this is the New American Standard Bible. Uh, let's see. I'll start in, in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So a couple things of note here. Some translations, uh, I'm not sure which ones, in our, maybe, maybe in the ESV, um, or, or here it is in, in the Tree of Life version, it says they could not drink from the waters because they were bitter, or the waters were bitter. The, when it says they were bitter, I think it's talking about Israel. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. The Israelites were bitter. And they grumbled at Moses. They actually grumbled against Moses in the Hebrew there. So they were, they were just not going to be happy with anything. Certainly not the water. So that's, that's something to note there. Another is that the tree 
so we have, we have bitter water. Let's just say that the water was bitter, the bitter water. He takes a tree branch, throws it in, and makes it sweet. Well, I don't know of any tree branches that are sweet. I think the tree branch was bitter too. So here we have an instance where bitter water is made sweet by another bitter thing. Bitterness for bitterness. Like cures like. Here's a, let me just share this from, a, from an article I read by A.L. Goldberger. Uh, let's see. Scripture gives us two wonderful descriptions of purifying bitter water from which we can learn about the healing process in general. The first instance narrates the arrival of the children of Israel at Marah after three days in the Shur Desert without water. And I just read what, what it was. Um, in his commentary on the Torah, Rabbeinu Bacha quotes the Talmud sages who say that originally the water had been fresh. It turned bitter as an additional test in the series of trials in the desert and then was made sweet again by a bitter branch. Another example uh, of, of, of uh, water desalination is found when Elisha comes to Jericho after the miracles of Elijah ascending to heaven and the Jordan River splitting open. And the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord may see. But the water is bad, and the ground causes untimely births. And Elisha said, Bring me a new flask and put salt in it. And they brought it to him, and they went out to the springs of waters and cast salt in there, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. There shall not be from there any more death or miscarriages. So the water was healed to this day, according to the saying of Elisha. And this is in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Rabbi Gamaliel, who we know was Paul's teacher, gives an insight uh, saying, how wondrous are his deeds and ways than the ways of mortals. He put the polluting agent into the polluted material to perform a miracle within a miracle. Human beings heal bitterness with sweetness, but God heals bitterness with bitterness. Another way to put it is a man wounds with a knife but heals with a bandage but God wounds and heals with the same thing Um, as a side note this is the concept of homeopathy homeo meaning same pathy meaning suffering same suffering homeopathic same suffering contrast that with another uh, form of healing antipathy different suffering opposite suffering um, this is not an endorsement of one way or the other of homeopathic or antipathic medicine or anything, but it's just these concepts uh, are, are prevalent and we talk about them. And here I think is an example of where bitterness was, was made sweet with bitterness. And what is the wilderness but, but bitterness? They were bitter in, in Egypt. They were bitter under slavery. God freed them and put them through a new bitterness, another bitterness, a, a more purposeful bitterness. Uh, to make them sweet. So, moving on to the seventh goings forth. This is by the Red Sea. This is this is the 
last stop before the wilderness, before the Midbar. Um, and on the other side of that wilderness, of course, is the land of promise. Here's a lot where I want to talk about how the wilderness is necessary because God keeps his promise. The promise to the Israelites was the land, a good land, a place of goodness, a place of love, a place of uh, prosperity, nourishment, all, all, all things good, right? God promised that this place would, would, would be theirs, which means that only good things will be there, which means that you can't bring any bad things to it, which means if there's anything in you that is not good, it must die in the wilderness. Do you catch that? There was a, a video I saw recently um, by, uh, I think, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, where he, he coined a phrase that I just love. I absolutely love it. He said, God wants to get the hell out of you. <laughs> he wants to get the hell out of you. He wants to get the bad, the, he, wants, he wants to get death out of you because it cannot be in the land of promise. The promise that God has for us is a place of goodness and we've got to leave all the bad things behind. And God in his mercy and his kindness will give us a wilderness in which to shed those things. It's going to be painful. You know, we got the 60 pounds on our back of a backpack. We got to go up and down these hills. Like, oh, I forgot about this part. This is, not, this is not the fun part. But where we're going is beautiful. It is good. There's nothing but goodness there. But we, we can't bring our baggage into it. It's hard for us to get rid of that baggage. It's hard for us to kill those things ourselves. That's where God steps in provides us a wilderness, whether it's a small wilderness, a short wilderness, or a long wilderness. He's not interested in the length or the distance, only that this wilderness is meaningful. So, wilderness, land of promise. Um, I want to read a little bit from the devotional, from Grant's devotional on this encampment. Uh, that gets into more of this, uh, this whole thought. Let me put it to you straight. The wilderness is deadly, and it is God's appointed place for each of us to come to an end. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when, man, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. This should come as no surprise to believers. After all, the master said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Luke 9, 24. The wilderness is where each have an appointment with death. We all have a lot of dying to do. Thus, the detour through the wilderness is as it, as it is the ideal place for us to do our dying. And if we will allow the wilderness to do its deadly work in us, we can begin to experience newness of life, resurrection life. And there can be no resurrection where there has been no death. As C.S. Lewis said, the cure of death is dying. Bitterness, 
for bitterness. Like cures like. It's not the same kind of death, but it is a death nonetheless. Two more. We're going to move on to Goings fourth number nine, dofka, which means to tap or to knock lightly on the door. Not much goes on here. And the point of, of this, of sharing this, as, as Grant does in the, in the devotional uh, at, at greater length, is to say, be okay with long stretches of not much going on. All of the events of Abraham's life, he lived a long life, and we have a lot, we have a lot of the uh, accountings of his life. It still was a long life. There was a lot, a, lot, a lot of uneventful stretches of time. Be okay with that. God keeps his promises. Just because something isn't going, wrong or going on or we're not feeling any forward momentum doesn't mean things aren't working out. Doesn't mean that we aren't being changed. And it doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or is not going to keep his promise. He will. So be okay with long, uneventful stretches of not much going on. One more encampment for today. And that is number 10, Alush. Alush means to knead, as you knead dough. Speaking of backpacking, one of my favorite people to take along on a backpacking trip is my friend Nate. And uh, there are only a couple reasons why I like him to be on the trip with me. One of them is that he brings uh, dough to make campfire biscuits or campsite biscuits. I forget what he calls them. But he has the dough in a, in a Ziploc bag. He carries it in. And then once we get there, once we get the fire made, he'll get out his little skillet. I don't, I don't think he uses a cast iron skillet. I think it's just an uh, a aluminum or titanium skillet. And he brings it out and he just works it, eats it, right? Plops it down in this pan, cooks it up, and it is so good. Oh my goodness, it's so good. It's probably so good because of the long travel we've had to endure through the woods and anything tastes better once you have to do that kind of exertion. You know, it could be, I don't know, it could be a, uh, uh, McDonald's uh, egg and cheese McMuffin, I mean, which is uh, it's not that great. But there, it would just be like, oh, this is, I'm in heaven, right? I'm dying to go to heaven. But those biscuits are so, so good. Um, so, so but, he, but here's the interesting thing. So, and this is also in, in the devotion here. And I'll read this from, from, uh, from his devotional and, and share it. But um, kneading, kneading the dough changes the molecular structure of bread. And, and what, what is actually happening? When, you, when you're stretching it and pounding it and moving it, it is changing the structure, but it's also removing some of the impurities till you're working some things out, right? It's just like a, it's a pressure. It is a, a, a kind of, it's a loving pressure too because the outcome is something that will bless people. The bread will be delicious, right? So there's this kneading and, 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 and pressing and stretching and breaking and, and, and reconnecting of, the, uh, of all the different molecules and elements inside this dough. It's, it's a miraculous thing. Um, and to read uh, part of this devotional, not too much and not too little, 
And what I, Grant, found most fascinating is how the dough is tested to determine if it has been properly kneaded. It's called the windowpane test. And do you guys do that? Do you, you make bread? I've got, I have an audience here tonight. Yes, they do. Yes, they're nodding their head. Yeah, they, they, he's, he's, he just went like this. So the windowpane test is you take a small piece of dough, stretch it out until it is thin enough to see through. If you can see through it, the kneading is complete. If the dough breaks before it gets thin enough to see through, then it needs more kneading. Did you get that? It must be transparent without being brittle. Hmm. Hmm. Are you transparent when you're stretched? Or do you break? Yes and no. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But as we live our lives, we, we want to get better. We want to be more transparent than we break. But we, we'll still break, right? So, yeah. God isn't concerned with the length of the journey as he is with how meaningful this journey is. And boy, is our journey meaningful. The Israelites, God bless them. They, they went through, they, they were the, you know, the, um, not experiment number one, but they were the, the prime example of what it is to be transformed into a righteous people, which is what we all want to do. If you're watching this, if you're still watching this, it's probably because you want to be uh, more, more aware, more understanding of what it means to be a human being. Um, and thank God he's given us his instruction book on how to do that. But it still takes a community. It still takes a lot of us to come together and understand it, to talk about it, to, to trial and error, live it out, um, seek correction, and, and want that correction, and accept the correction, too, when it comes. The kneading and, and the pressing, the pressure and the stretching, right? This is all, this is all part and parcel of this life. And I am so thankful to be on this journey with you, um, whether, whether I actually know you who are watching or not. We're, we're in this together. And uh, hopefully we will all meet one day and be able to say, you did it. Good job. We made it to the land. We made it to the land, and we only had to lose uh, an arm and a leg <laughs> before we got there. Maybe we'll lose some pounds, too. Wouldn't that be nice? Our wilderness, yeah, you have to die, too, but you get slimmer. So that's, maybe that's a plus. I don't know. But um, <laughs> anyway, I hope, I hope this was a blessing to you. This has been a blessing to me to, to uh, review these goings forth and to just remind myself that, uh, that God keeps his promise and that, and that there's purpose. There's purpose in this pain. You know, all pain is birth pain, as, as we like to say. And, and what's going to be born on the other side of this time is going to be new life. And it's going to be beautiful. And we're going to forget all about the hike. We'll forget about the hike. And we'll want to do it again. We'll be like, ah, yeah, let's go back to that promised land, you know. So anyway, I hope this was a blessing to you as much as it was to me. And um, let's close in prayer, in prayer. Father, you are brilliant. You are, your, your ways are so magnificent and beautiful and 
And we are just in awe of, of your plan, um, the parts of it that you have allowed us to see. And we pray, Father, that you continue to, to reveal to us uh, what these steps are so that we can faithfully follow you and your ways. Uh, we, we ask you to, to bless us as we continue on through our Torah study this year. And also I ask you a, a special blessing on Israel. Israel has been um, an example uh, to us, and we, we love them, and we, we hope uh, that they will continue to grow in awareness of you and of your Messiah, whom we know is Yeshua. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for good humor uh, and understanding and being able to safely hash things out. Uh, it is such a blessing. We don't take that for granted. Thank you, Father, and we hope that we can work with you as co-creators in this world to make it uh, a place that it is supposed to be as it was in the garden. So, Father, make us the people you want us to be, and we will happily and uh, enthusiastic run, enthusiastically run towards you in the land. And it's in your Son, Yeshua's name, we pray. Amen.